You are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. Last year, an exhaustive study was done on the subject of hope. Now, this was during the time of a global pandemic, COVID-19, a contentious election and all kinds of turbulence in our country. Two entities came together, the American Bible Society and Harvard University. You talk about two odd fellows. I'm excited to see that type of combination coming together. And they decided they were going to study the correlation between reading the Bible and hope. So they did this study with countless people in the most difficult time in recent memory. And they asked the question, how often do you read the Bible? And then they ranked people on a 100-point scale from 1 to 100, with 100 being the most hopeful. Those that read the Bible three to four times a year came in at 42 points. Those that read the Bible once a month were at 56. Those that read the Bible a few times a month or even once a week were at 66. And those that read the Bible three to four times a week were at 75 points. Now, this should come as no surprise to those of us who are part of Crossroads Bible Church. We believe that reading God's Word brings about hope. In fact, in light of this research, what we could say is Crossroads Bible Church is Crossroads Hopeful Church because we read God's Word. And people are seeking to read the Word during a relatively hopeless time in our country. They're seeking out the scriptures. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, Peter is going to go after the theme of hope. He begins with hope in chapter 1, verse 13. He concludes with hope in chapter 1, verse 21. So it's a sandwich, which is why we're preaching this particular section. Now what's astonishing is, if you recall last week, we had two verses of introduction, and then we had a thanksgiving that started in verse 3 and went all the way through verse 12. Well, in the very first verse of the thanksgiving, chapter 1, verse 3, what did Peter want to talk about? The living hope that we have as believers that is based upon Christ's resurrection. Peter is going to ask, ask a very important question. How can we have hope in a spiritually hostile world? How can we have hope in a spiritually hostile world? And he's going to answer that question. He says, hope comes from where you look. Hope comes from where you look. And what he's going to do is he's going to provide us three looks that will bring about hope in our Christian lives and ministries. So if you haven't already, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, and we'll see the very first look. Look forward to Christ's return. Verse 13, 
The motivation of Christ's return ought to bring about anticipation and inspiration. It ought to be a call to action. Peter writes in verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if Peter were writing in our day and age, using our technology, he'd use bullet points. Prepare your heart. Keep sober. Set or fix your mind. Three quick bullet points. But we need to break down this verse to make sure that we understand it properly. The word therefore ties back to verses 1 through 12 that we looked at last week. What Peter is doing is he's focusing in on our identity in Christ. He's focusing in on our new nature, our new heart. And what he's saying is who you are and where you're headed is actually more important than what you do. Because Peter knows if we do what we do without recognizing our new nature and our new heart, we'll be doing it with impure motivation. So he wants to make sure that we have a spiritual gut check as we begin. He's going to move from what's called statements of fact, indicatives, to commands or imperatives. So 12 verses setting the table, so to speak, to make sure that we know who we are. And now, in verse 13 and following, he's going to tell us what to do. This ought to remind us that God's commands are grounded and founded on grace. That we cannot perform the way that we might like. We cannot measure up to God's expectations because God himself has said, my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, already fulfilled all of my expectations. And if we are in Christ, we can obey out of a heart that's filled with grace as our primary motivation. So now let's see the command in verse 13. It's not one of the first two bullet points. It's the final bullet point. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is actually the first command in the letter of 1 Peter. Fix your hope, which is one of the themes of the letter. Hope. This tense has a sense of urgency, a sense of action. So we fix our hope. We set our hope. And notice he says completely or fully. In other words, we're often distracted by all kinds of other artificial hopes, hopes that we long for. But Peter is saying, no, fix your hope completely on Christ's return and the grace that you'll receive. Now, a logical question is, I thought we already had God's grace. Why does he bring up grace that's going to come to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ? It's correct. We already have grace. That's what verses 3 through 12 was all about. But at Jesus Christ's return, we experience what's called glorification, where we're given a new body and ultimately a new mind and a new purity. But with that comes rewards that God gives in his grace to those who love him and to those who have served him. 
So that's where our hope is found, in our final salvation and in our reward. Now we have to ask the question, where is our hope found right now? Just stop and think about that for a moment. Perhaps you're a single mom and you're in need of support. And you're looking to your family members and your friends for emotional, physical, perhaps spiritual support. Maybe you're a single man and you're lonely and you're looking for a life partner and your hope is set on finding a good and godly woman. Perhaps you were just diagnosed with a chronic disease. Perhaps leukemia or cancer, a debilitating disease with a death sentence. And you're placing your hope, your confidence in technology, the right medication, and the right doctor. Maybe you're a person who's recently moved to the east side of Seattle and you're overwhelmed with how expensive it is. And you're thinking to yourself, I, I can't make it. So I'm going to rely upon my job. My hope is going to be in my job, raises and bonuses, and promotions along the way. In all of this, what we'll find is, while it's natural to place our hope in something or in someone, God hasn't called us to natural living. He's called us to supernatural living. He's called us to place our hope, not a little, but completely on Jesus Christ and his coming. How do we do that? The only way to do that is by prayer, by pleading with God, Lord, help me in the midst of seeming hopelessness to fix or to set my heart and my hope on you and on you alone. Grant me that grace, Lord. And if you're like me, that's something that you need to pray daily and hourly and on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Always remember, where we look and who we look to is what will bring about hope or lack thereof. Now, Peter segues to the two actions that help us to set our hope on the grace to be brought to us at Christ's return. Go back now to the front end of verse 13. Action number one, prepare your minds for action. Literally, gird up the loins of your mind. That's how the Greek text translates it, and that's ultimately how the King James and the New King James lay it out. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't heard that particular rendering talked about a whole lot in church. Gird up your loins, the loins of your mind. Well, to us, it sounds odd. But to Peter's readers, it would have been commonplace. Because the men and the women in the ancient Near East, they wore long flowing robes. Even the men. And if the men wanted to walk, run, work, travel, or go to war, they had to get down and they had to pick up these robes. They had to pull them up over their knees and tuck them into their belts. Then they would be free to be active. Well, Peter is saying, what we do with our clothing, we tuck it in. Physically speaking, we ought to do with our minds. 
mentally and spiritually, we ought to ensure that we have girded up the loins of our mind so that we're focused on what God has called us to do. Some of us have our mental, emotional, and spiritual robes dangling and flowing way too long, and we need to pick them up, and we need to gird them and tuck them in and be prepared for action. Now, there's a second action, and that's also found in verse 13. You can see it right in the middle of the verse. Keep sober in spirit. Now, when we think of sobriety, we think of not drinking. But the opposite of that is drunkenness, where we can't walk right, we can't think right, we can't talk right. We're intoxicated. Spiritually speaking, we've been filled with the Holy Spirit of God so that we can walk right, think right, and talk right. But in this context, and in every context in the New Testament, being sober is speaking of ensuring that you're not mentally or spiritually drunk. It's not understood literally. It's a word picture of self-control and spiritual sobriety. Now, it's interesting if we chase this verb throughout 1 Peter, what we find is in chapter 4, verse 7, we're called to be sober or keep sober because the end is near and we need to be about prayer. In chapter 5, verse 8, there's another use. The devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We need to be sober. It's interesting that the noun form of this word is used of elders and deaconesses and older women and men. It's expected that if you want to be a leader in the church, and that includes CBC, that you be sensible, that you be self-controlled, that you be a person who is spiritually sober. So that's how we fix our hope on Christ's return. That's how we ensure that we recognize where to look. Now, we've seen the first look, the first look of verse 13, that we are to look forward to Christ's return. Now, let's take a look at the second look in verses 14 through 16. Look up to God's character. Look up to God's character. Peter is going to say, your example to being a person of holiness and righteousness is your father. All you have to do is look to your father. Like father, like son or daughter is the implication in these verses. Notice verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. So Peter does something beautiful here. He uses the phrase obedient children, and we see that in all of our English versions. But the original language reads, children of God. It's a more awkward way of translating things, but it's actually right. It's accurate. But it's a way of expressing it in Hebrew thought. Peter brings in a Jewish way of expressing language. But for the sake of our English versions, we've translated it in a more simplistic fashion. 
But here's what's profound of translating it children of God. When we think of obedient children or children of obedience, what we're looking at is behavior. But if we translate it children of obedience, it's dealing with nature. It's dealing with the fact that we've been hardwired from the point that we believed in Jesus Christ to be children of obedience. It's who we are. And who we are then can behave in a particular way. It's a very important distinction. So children of obedience, children of God, if you will, don't be conformed to your former lusts. The reason that I had Naomi read Romans 12, 1 and 2 is the only other use of being conformed, do not be conformed, is Romans 12, verse 2. So it means to be squeezed into a mold. It means that if you don't push against the world, the world's going to push in on you and you and I are going to become those who look and act a lot like the world. What's interesting is Peter says, the problem is your former lusts. And the fact that there could be a temptation to go back to your former lusts. Now, some of you are saying, Keith, you're not going to talk about that in church, are you? Well, Peter is, so I have to at least touch on it, but I'll be kind. We immediately think of sexual immorality when we think of former lusts. And there are many other lusts. But as we go through 1 Peter, we do find that sexual immorality was a problem for Peter's readers and for his audience. Chapter 4 is very clear on that. Peter is saying, don't look back, as Boston's saying, don't look back. Don't look back to your former lusts. Those things that you did B.C. before Christ. Now, you may be saying, well, that's not a problem for me, Keith. Well, what if I said it's a problem for me? And it's a problem for most godly men and women that I know. That when Satan attacks and when there are the influences of the world and when there is an issue with your flesh, you can long for your former lusts. But let me ask you a few questions just quickly. When you were involved in your former lusts, whatever they may have been, what did the actions and the activity do for you? Did it make you happy? Did you become content or did you want more and more of whatever your vice was? I want you to stop and think for just a moment. What if you took your former lusts, all of them, and you brought them into your present experience, your walk with Christ? What would it do to you? What would the consequences be? The reality is, if you're single, you could lose your purity, the purity that you've cherished, perhaps. If you're married, you could destroy your marriage. You could alienate your children. It could affect your employment. It could affect your involvement in your church. We rarely reflect on the consequences of taking our former sins and bringing them back into our present experience. Now, honestly, whatever your vice is, 
There's all kinds of ways of beating that vice on a day-to-day basis. There's accountability. There's confession. There's all kinds of tools and resources. But as important as many of those things are, I've only found one thing that's especially helpful over the long run. And that is replacing the desire of your past, and for some, their present, with a greater affection, with a greater desire. And we all know what that is. It's God's Word, and it's the Gospel. It's an intimate relationship with Christ. Now, it sounds so easy, but it's the only thing that's, that works because it's what God has designed to work. It's simply falling in love with Jesus and recognizing your new nature and your new heart, which is driven to obedience. It's who you are. It's how you've been created in Christ. You're a new creation. And God desires and has wired you to obey. Now, in verses 15 and 16, Peter's going to go on forward with some challenging verses. Look at verse 15 in particular. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. So here we have our second command. There's three commands in this passage. The first one is... Fix your hope. You were listening so well. (laughs) Fix your hope. The second one is be holy. And then we have a word, behavior or conduct. This is one of the key words in 1 Peter. It's used six times and there's only five chapters. It's an important word. But the term holy is where we need to touch. When we hear that word, whether we're believers or unbelievers, we don't find that word very appetizing, do we? There's just that sense of, oh, holy, holiness. And Christians and non-Christians think of self-righteous people, smug people, boring people, people that are completely irrelevant in culture. But that's not what the term means. It means to be set apart for a unique and special purpose. You and I were called, past tense, holy, and we've been called to a life of holiness. Now, let's just think through this concept quickly. We often call marriage holy matrimony. When a man and a woman come together, they separate from their families and they are set apart to one another. That is holy matrimony. Today is my parents' 57th wedding anniversary. And I know they're watching online, so dad and mom, happy anniversary. Thanks for living the life and honoring your marriage covenant. 57 years. They've separated themselves from all other affections. 
That's what it means to be holy. But let's go further. We call the Bible Holy Scripture. Have you ever wondered why we call the Bible Holy Scripture? Because we believe that this book is set apart from all other human writings. Irregardless of how wonderful they are or how helpful they are. This book is unique and distinct. It is set apart. Peter is saying the same is true for each one of us. We've been set apart for a unique and special purpose. And that is to look like our Father. Now, in verse 15, you can see, again, the past tense. You've been called. This is something that happened previously. Why do I need to emphasize the fact that the past tense is used? And in the verse prior, the phrase, children of obedience, is used. Because many Christians and non-Christians are trying to be holy apart from the gospel of grace and the Holy Spirit's empowerment. And scripture is clear that commands to be holy are designed for believers, not for unbelievers. Now here's why this is so important. We've got a next generation that is dealing with things that many of us have never had to deal with. And their peers and even some of their teachers are doing things and saying things that some of us might be very uncomfortable with. But most of them are unbelievers or what we could call pre-Christians. What are unbelievers supposed to do? They're supposed to sin. It's a part of their job description. That's what unbelievers do. But what Christians can be guilty of is we can try to clean up non-Christians, and help them to be holy before they have been set apart with a special and unique purpose to honor God. First, they have to believe in Christ. Then they receive the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that allows them to be holy. I find it interesting that many of us in the church can point our fingers at politicians and media pundits and our co-workers and our neighbors who are living lives that aren't necessarily holy, but they don't have the power to even do so. And yet we do, and sadly, sometimes our bosses, our co-workers, our neighbors, our classmates are saying, what's wrong with you? I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were supposed to be holy. We need to be very, very careful here. We don't want to call the world out when we should be calling the church out. Hope comes from where we look. And if we're not looking to the gospel, and if we don't understand the nature of salvation, we're going to be confused in our speech and in our actions. Now, to back up his argument, notice verse 16. Peter says, I'm calling you to be holy as God is holy because, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, this is merely a quote from the book of Leviticus. That is the summary of Leviticus. We could sum it up in one word, holiness. In chapters 11, 19, and 20, 
the author Moses records God's words, be holy as I am holy. So what was true in Leviticus for Israel, Peter is saying, that's still true for you and I today. That Old Testament commandment is still relevant because it's repeated in the New Testament. Peter is quoting it. He's showing the relevance of holiness. In what area of your life do you need to tune up? Where are you struggling with sin? Whether it's in your thoughts, whether it's in your words, whether it's in your actions, what area of your life could someone accuse you of not being holy in? Think of it this way. Would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? Or would your coworkers, classmates, and neighbors be <gasps> shocked that you're a Christian? They're like, you go to church? You're a follower of Jesus? Are you serious? I had no idea. I mean, that's like the worst statement that someone could make to any of us that we're not wearing our faith on our sleeve. We're not boldly and courageously living for Christ. So Peter has told us we need to look forward to Christ's return and we need to look up to God's character. Those are the first two looks. The third look is found in verses 17 through 21. Look back to Christ's sacrifice. Now you want to talk about ironic and yet providential. Peter has just finished saying, don't look back. Don't look back at those former lusts. Don't go there. Do not go there. Now he says, but I, I do want you to look back. But I want you to look back on Christ's sacrifice for your sin. And that's going to be one of those looks that's going to help you live your life the way God intends. Look with me at verse 17. In verse 17, Peter writes, If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. So we have a third command. A third command in this passage. Conduct yourselves in fear. The first command, fix your hope. The second command, be holy. The third command, conduct yourselves in fear. But before we get to that command, in verse 17, Peter begins by saying, if you pray, if you call out to God as Father, what's he doing here? He's doing what he has done throughout the book. He is saying, I can't ask you to obey unless I have first reminded you of your relationship with God. And the grace that he gives. Because you can't obey apart from it. And if you can, it's done in the strength of your flesh. And it's all going to be worthless one day. I know every time we talk about God as Father, it's painful for many of you in your heart of hearts. Because you had a dad who neglected you. Who may have abused you in the worst ways imaginable. And you hear God as Father and you're like, oh, 
I can't see God as father because of my earthly father. For many of us, we may struggle with that for the rest of our lives. And even those of us like me who had a wonderful earthly father, we often make the mistake of still not understanding God's grace, his mercy, his compassion. Often we can be driven toward perfectionism or toward trying to please people and please God through illegitimate means. But one of the greatest ways to motivate obedience is to realize you have a father who loves you, who will never hurt you, who cares about you, who wants the very best for you. That will motivate obedience in the long term. In verse 17, you can see that he judges impartially. Now, this is an important term. The word literally means to judge not according to one's face. Now, boy, am I glad God doesn't judge me according to my face. I say thank the Lord all the time. The point of this is God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He doesn't look at who you are physically, mentally, socially. He's looking at the heart and he's looking at the actions, the works that have come about through that heart. And he says, I want you to conduct yourselves in fear, knowing that I'm both father and judge. Now again, we're thinking, wait a second here. How can father and judge go together? And you just got through saying, God loves me. God cares about me. But now you're saying, I need to fear that God. What gives, Keith? Well, let's just lay a foundational statement out that may surprise some of you, but it's nonetheless true. We are told to fear God three times as much as we are called to love God or to trust God. Let me repeat that statement. I want to make sure you understand this. We are called in Scripture, in Holy Scripture, three times as often to fear God than we are to love God or to trust God. So whatever it means to fear God, it's the primary emphasis in Scripture. I think the simplest way to understand it is to recognize God alone is awesome. He's sovereign. He is in utter control. He is the most powerful being. And we need to just stand in awe of him. Or we need to prostrate ourselves before him like the Apostle John. We need to say like Isaiah, woe is me. We need to have that kind of mentality. We also need to understand that the fear of God and the love of God are not at odds with each other. They work together perfectly. And if you're a parent, you understand this. If you never discipline your child, your child will not respect you. They will not appreciate your authority. And if they don't appreciate your authority, they're not going to appreciate anyone else's authority over the course of their lives. Love and fear 
go together without any issue. It's ultimately to be in awe of God's great power, to take him seriously. We do this during our stay on earth. You might want to circle that word stay because it reflects back to exiles or aliens in chapter 1 verse 1. The same type of concept is used in chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. Peter keeps going back to the fact that these are spiritual exiles. They're aliens and we are too. We're going through this life and it's just a brief, brief time on earth. We need to live our lives accordingly. Verse 18 all the way through 21 are going to explain why we need to fear God. Starting in verse 18, it's all about who and what you know. So that ties back to verse 13. Knowing, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. So Peter says, you've been redeemed. To be redeemed means to be purchased. A price was paid for you, and you were, in this case, brought into a relationship with God. In Peter's day, they understood this, because a person did not need to be a lifelong slave. Slaves could purchase their freedom, and they did it in an unusual fashion. They would go to a temple with gods and goddesses, and they would pay the price, as it was called. Once they had paid, the money would be given to their master, their employer, and they would be set free. Isn't it interesting that we talk about Christ paying the price? And that's what he did. In the ancient Near East, that was a temporary solution. God has provided an eternal solution through redemption. Verse 19 continues. But with the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. How have we been redeemed? By Christ's blood. Christ's life and his sacrifice was perfect. It was unblemished. It was spotless. That simply means without sin. I love the term precious because we often think, oh, how cute. How adorable. Look at that precious child. Reality is, it doesn't mean any of those things in Scripture. It means priceless. That Christ's blood was priceless. Gold and silver, that's scrap metal compared to Christ's blood. Peter is telling us hope comes from where we look. We must take the right look. In verse 20, he tells us the purpose in all of this. For he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. We discussed last week in chapter 1, verse 2, that foreknow doesn't mean to know in advance. It means God has purposed in advance to accomplish certain things. In other words, before the creation of the world, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they got together and they determined how they were going to offer humanity the gospel, the good news through the person and work of Christ. God had you and me and the world on his mind 
before we were even brought into the world. Verse 21 wraps up by saying, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and what? Hope are in God. This is an unusual verse, but what Peter is saying is Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection have made it possible for us to know the one true God. The gospel was costly. The gospel was priceless because of Christ's precious blood. There is nothing that you and I can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing that we can do to turn away his wrath. Jesus has done it. He's accomplished it for us. All we have to do is believe. What that means is if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't have to bring anything to the table except your sin. You can give God your sin in exchange for His righteousness, His perfection. And you can receive the gift of salvation freely because of what Jesus Christ has done. You can do that this morning in your own seat. You can talk to one of our pastors or elders afterwards. You can go into the prayer room and talk with someone about the decision that you've made. But please believe today. Did you notice we started with hope? Verse 13, we conclude with hope. Verse 21, how can we experience hope in a spiritually hostile world? By looking forward to Christ's return, by looking up at God's character, and by looking back at Christ's sacrifice. Hope is found in where we look. We need to have the right look, and the right look is Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I've never liked the color yellow much. But when I learned about Vincent van Gogh, I began to be interested in the color yellow. Vincent van Gogh was a Dutch painter who grew up in a Christian home. And he suffered with depression his entire life. But when he was hoping in God and when he was exercising faith in God and the Lord Jesus Christ, his paintings would reflect with yellow. The starry night when he was particularly depressed. That painting, yellow stars and all kinds of other entities were contrasted against the black night. But then, the portrait of the raising of Lazarus. Yellow filled the picture. Yellow was spilling out all over the place because... Van Gogh was expressing his hope in Christ. In fact, he went one step further. Instead of having Lazarus' head on Lazarus' body, he painted his own head and face because he was saying, my hope is in Christ. Van Gogh continued to struggle with depression, but yellow was always an indication of where his hope was found. Where is your hope found? If it's not found on the Lord Jesus, your hope is going to disappoint you. 
My hope and prayer is that we will look to the Lord Jesus, that we will look to the gospel of grace and realize that is the greatest motivation for obedience imaginable.